Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. We are your hosts, Zach Smerin and Ben Janowitz. Today, we are proud to present Zach's conversation with Ben Rogoli, a professor of human geography at the Center for Migration Research at the University of Sussex in Brighton, England. His works include the 2020 book, Stories from a Migrant City, Living and Working Together in the Shadow of Brexit. The article, Laboring Geography in a Global Pandemic, Social Reproduction, Racial Capitalism, and World Making Praxis, which he co-authored with Hannah Schling, and a paper from last year, co-authored with Mashumi Bomek, titled In Search of Unbordered Homelands, Exploring the Role of Music in Building Effective Internationalist Politics of Solidarity. He has also co-produced the film Workers, a series of first-hand accounts of harsh employment conditions in warehouse and food production sectors, primarily focusing on the experiences of migrant laborers. His knowledge and experience in dealing with subjects around urban geography, music, migration, and diaspora as well as being an active participant in contemporary Jewish progressive and radical politics in Britain, all of which are covered in this conversation, are not the only reasons why we are speaking with Professor Rogoli today. He is also a longtime friend of the show. Ben reached out to us shortly after we published our third episode. We can't promise that we will bring everyone on, or that we will do so quickly, but we truly do appreciate feedback, comments, and suggestions from all our listeners, and seek to maintain a constructive relationship with you as much as we can within our capacity. Please follow us on Instagram, Instagram, at the Jewish Diasporist Pod, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jewish Diasporist and Making Menches, which we are using as a platform for our budding partnership. If you are able to, do consider giving us a monthly donation on Patreon. Even a dollar, pound, euro a month massively helps us to keep doing this work. All links are in the description. Thank you very much to Joe Dobkin, who has allowed us to use his new song, Fallen the Cavent, Falling Walls, for the intro. And we'd like to give a very special thank you to Jacob, the Bundist who edited this episode. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Tief bei mir in Herzen flammt a fire. Wenn es seht euch wie alt zu falten brennt. In mir brennt, aber darf zu sehen kein Völker. Zwischen fallen die Gewänd. Ben, it's absolutely great to have you on the podcast. You're one of our earliest listeners and got in touch with us very, very quickly. And we want to really uh, cherish that kind of connection that we have with our audience, at least for the time being when we aren't that big of a platform to connect. So we want to have this conversation as well for the fact that if there is anybody in our audience that wants to say something interesting, has something interesting to say, uh, then we're absolutely open to that. And people who are listening can consider this an open invitation. So Ben, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Thanks so much, Zach. And it's a real pleasure to be here. And I really appreciate the invitation. I am an academic. Um, I've been uh, working in academia since 96. Um, I work in a geography department uh, at the University of Sussex, where I'm a professor. And my field is around um, cities, migration, race, class, labor studies. And perhaps um, my interests in my work side are connected with my upbringing my dad was Jewish. He had mostly Ashkenazi heritage. There's possibly some Sephardi heritage there, which I can say why I, I think that. I don't know an awful lot. You know, I know that there were certain migrations from somewhere in the Pale of Settlement to England and then South Africa. 
and my Jewish grandfather and grandmother lived with me for the last 20 plus years of their lives. And my dad was very much a secular and assimilated Jew. What's different from most of the people who've, or anybody who's spoken on your podcast, you know, I just think it kind of distracts maybe, but it's not a secret, is that, you know, my mum was Christian and we grew up with that. I'm a father as well as an academic. Um, my partner is a Sikh and the mother of our children and um, they are young people of colour in contemporary Britain in their late 20s. And we have a, a lot of mix in our heritages, let's put it that way. I don't think we have had yet a specific person that openly identified as patrilineal on our platform yet, uh, even though that's what I am. My mother's not Jewish. I converted to reform Judaism officially when I was 13. But it is something that is a very interesting phenomena, not just in Britain, of course, in my background as well. In Poland, it's not just a question of uh, lineage through the father, but also people connecting with Jewish backgrounds if they have a grandparent or maybe even a great-grandparent sometimes. It's less of a pressure unless you're in a sort of the orthodox environments uh, of the communities. But in Britain, it's also something that comes up maybe to a smaller extent, but in a different way. Um, is that something that was influential for you in your, in your upbringing and in your connection with your Jewishness? Um, well, the fact that it was through my dad rather than mm -hmm. my mum. Yeah, I mean, I think I've got three younger sisters and we all have names that you could say are Jewish names in an anglicised form. So you know, my name is Ben, short for Benjamin. I've got a sister called Sarah, another called Rachel. I'm not sure about Jessica, the third one, whether that's also a Jewish name. But we have our second name, which is um, an attempt to anglicise Rogalski, which I think comes from Polish. Yes. And you couldn't forget, but also growing up in the 70s, you know, anti-Semitism was a thing. We had the very large presence of the National Front and the fight against the National Front. And it's not that far from the Holocaust. So you're kind of aware of what the history is from that point of view. And you know that you might not be considered Jewish by people who see Jewishness only in terms of matrilineal um, inheritance and heritage. But, you know, a Nazi would see you as Jewish. And therefore you are, you know, you're Jewish enough for it to, to matter, to have skin in the game from that point of view. Um, tell us a little bit about your academic career. From your paper, which we're going to get to in a little bit, um, it, it says that you, um, you lived in West Bengal. I did a PhD based in West Bengal in India, and I lived there for several years afterwards. I was really interested in the migration of people and uh, particularly the migration of people for work and how the relations of employment can be changed from below by people who are subject to exploitation and how migration can be part of that. So one of the things I looked at was where people moved away for a season to work in a rice harvest, earned money and came back to a place where they were very much at the sort of lowest rungs of society, but because they'd earned money, they had a bit more status and they could hold their own a bit more in the class relations and the place where they came from. So I was very interested in a combination of social, cultural, political, economic changes that can happen through migration. Um, and that stayed with me when I moved to work in the UK, initially with agricultural workers, and then in a city or two cities in Norwich and in Peterborough, which are in the east of England, which are very agricultural areas, 
um, around the cities. And Peterborough is a place where a lot of people live who go out to work in food factories in the countryside, in the fens, and, and on the edge of the city in warehouses, many of whom are Polish, actually. And the whole mix in Peterborough of long-term resident people who might be racialized minorities, might be white British, as well as more recent people, both Eastern European people, Portuguese people, people from other parts of the world. That mix led me to this idea that I developed called non-elite cosmopolitanism. And it very much has been um, a political intervention as well as an academic intervention, because at the time I talked about this in my latest book, which is called Stories from a Migrant City, I was very aware of how in the Brexit debates, cosmopolitanism was being posited as an elite ideology. And it was a, one of the ways in which nationalism was being furthered uh, was to demonise cosmopolitanism as something that only belonged to rich people. Whereas in, in Peterborough, where most people were working in uh, non-elite jobs, often in food factories and warehouses, there were, alongside the everyday racisms that occur across the country everywhere, there were also moments of ordinary, banal mixing in car boot sales, even in the workplace. And sometimes workers would come together, workers with different backgrounds, different national backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, languages, and fight back against some of the harsher employment regimes, for example, in an Amazon warehouse. So this is something which I've been developing in relation to kind of political changes of the re-emergence of racial nationalism, which is how I've seen some of the, the kind of Brexit debates and then post-Brexit developments, but also in the paper that we might talk about as something which has its parallels in other countries in different ways. The solidifying of ethno-nationalist regimes, the strengthening of racial nationalism in, in other countries as well. And I, I got very involved with the left-led Labour Party here as a way of um, challenging this because at, that, at the time, from 2015 to 2020, the party had a, an explicitly anti-racist position which was against any hierarchy of anti-racisms. All of those anti-racisms mattered and also had a critique of British colonial history. And there was, in fact, just before the 2019 election, there was a part of the manifesto, which was called the Race and Faith Manifesto, which talked about um, support to all communities, um, but with, an un with, a, with a kind of structural understanding of racism. And I felt when I met you first, I was so excited because I remember we'd been singing leftist Yiddish songs the evening before, and I was hoarse, I could hardly speak. And it was breakfast on a Yiddish weekend and we had to speak in Yiddish. And I saw you as a young person, because I'm like a lot older than you. And <laughs> I was excited to speak with you about student politics and the potentials of the left and the problems of its crushing. And part of my reason that I'm so interested in radical socialist and anarchist Yiddish um, poems and, and songs is because I feel that it's a way of being Jewish which can claim a kind of internationalist, universalist, radical tradition, which doesn't have to be part of this ethno-nationalist re-emergence. Wow, I have a lot to say about that. Just to sort of start off in chronological order, I studied just one year on my undergraduate on India, and I remember looking at some of the histories of migration and, and work 
something that interested me a lot was how caste was a category that was very different to a lot of the understandings that we have of race and ethnicity and nation um, in the West, but one that nevertheless saw some forms of, of similar kinds of politics in, um, in working class areas. I believe in Mumbai, there were the Dalit Panthers uh, that worked for a while. The cosmopolitanism that is not associated so much with as an elite idea or one that's connected to the largest urban areas in Britain is something that I have some first-hand experience with as well. I don't know what the population of Peterborough is. 200,000. 200, so I was in Coventry for a few years um, and I there had the opportunity to meet some of the uh, workplace organizing that was taking place and at the time I was very keen on being involved in it from the Polish perspective. There was an effort in those years to reactivate the Polish Socialist Party and part of that was also working towards organizing Polish workers in Britain. The story behind why the PPS fell is an interesting one. We won't get into that now. But some of the discussions there and, and the ideas that we had and trying to connect in that way, helping out Polish workers in the way that they were treated in Coventry, it's particularly around automobile factories mm. uh, historically and still today. I mean, I, I wish I'd met you then. <laughs> some of my friends in Peterborough started a newspaper called Nagestroni, and it served the Polish community in a wider area than just Peterborough. Peterborough had a like disproportionately high number of Polish people. And it was an important part of this, this work that I did for this book. It was you know, 10 years of work. And what I wanted to say about it is that with a, a guy who became a friend, a filmmaker from Peterborough called Jay Gearing, we made one film, which is a series of chapters about workers working in like Amazon warehouses and elsewhere. And many of the people in that film are Polish workers and you could almost have used it as an organizing tool it's still available online I don't mm -hmm. know if you put things in show notes but I can give you the link anyway yeah yeah absolutely it's interesting the way in which um, with migration a very recent migration in the case of Poles uh, since 2004 really in, in Britain although you did have more established communities earlier than that it's it becomes quite complicated in terms of what national and ethnic identity is for some people. Once you have people who live in Britain for, for 10, 15 years, once they have kids, what language do they speak with them? What kind of institutions are exist for them? In Coventry, the main Polish institution that exists alongside, very closely associated with the Polish centre is the the Catholic Church, which has existed for the most time. And for many Polish people, I'm not even talking about someone like myself, but for many Polish people being associated with the Catholic Church in that way is not the primary way in which they want to engage, and it can remove them from the community in that way. Now with Brexit, things change as well, and the way in which you relate to other national and ethnic minorities from Eastern Europe, from the British Commonwealth, mm. is all very interesting. And I think it connects to a lot of the ideas that we have around diasporism, around if we want to focus in areas such as uh, national cultural autonomy, education, uh, linguistics. I think that in those ways, uh, minorities such as, you know, Polish, Romanian, Portuguese, but also from, for example, Punjabis, Bengalis, um, from different Caribbean countries. There's certainly areas, therefore, for cooperation and connection. 
Following up on what you started to touch on a little bit, you recently published an article in the in the sociological review titled In Search of Unbordered Homelands, Exploring the Role of Music in Building Effective Internationalist Politics of Solidarity, co-authored with uh, Mushumi Bomik. Can you tell us a little bit the outline of this uh, of this article? It's a very unusual article because it takes the form of a conversation. And it's a conversation which Moshimi and I had been having since Brexit. Uh, well, in fact, not actual Brexit, but since the referendum. And we met three days after the referendum because she was giving a presentation performance of her work in a huge venue at the end of a conference. She was like the main thing that was happening, the main event. And I didn't know anything about her. But she presented a very, very moving set of songs, both her own and ordinary mostly rural working class people that she's recorded, Bengali people who don't have a platform, but she's recorded. I recommend her website, thetravellingarchive.org, which has a lot of these recordings on there. And she sang a song which really moved me called Joshua Road, which was about the devastation of the Bengali war of independence from Pakistan in 1971, when Bangladesh became a separate country, it had been East Pakistan since 47, when Pakistan became independent from Britain. And this song, Joshua Road, is about the movement of hungry, desperate, sick refugees trying to get across the land, across the border to Kolkata to get food, to get medicine, to be able to live which does have resonance with our current times. And maybe that's something we can come back to. But you asked me about the paper, so I, I will continue with that. So I was very moved by this. And then suddenly she broke into playing something from Asian Dub Foundation, which was a rehearsal conversations between these Cockney voices. And I was taken to the world of London multiculture, which is where I grew up. And I was just fascinated by this mixture of connections. And I think I was particularly moved because I was so knocked out by the Brexit vote result and its possible implications for people whose heritage was mixed in so many ways, like my own and family very mixed. And suddenly this kind of purity, this pureism, this nationalism was coming through so strongly. And I was really moved to tears and we got to know each other. My son was with me and we spent some time with Moshami. Um, we then stayed in touch and we had these conversations. And it was clear that in India, under Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who'd come to power two years before in 2014, there was a push for a kind of chauvinistic um, Hindu nationalism, which took the form of a kind of anti-Muslim, an organised institutional anti-Muslim racism. Not that anti-Muslim racism hadn't been there before, but that there were, especially in the second term of Modi, there were going to be new laws, uh, new citizenship laws. And Moshimi became part of a campaign which was against those laws, which were going to lock in place a second-class citizenship for Muslims in India. And there were all kinds of violences taking place there, including lynchings, which were seeming to get the tacit or explicit approval of various authorities. And we, we both shared a kind of sense of a growing emergence of ethno-nationalism, pushing towards fascism in certain places, or at least fascist politics, let's say, which is, you know, different to actual fascism. And we had a lot of 
conversations. And Moshmi would come to London where she has a son and I organised with friends um, some concerts for her in Brighton in a local Bengali cafe with dear friends Syed and Shamima who own the cafe which is called Tuntuns and we had Moshmi performed there um, and we, other things of that nature and we just kept talking and then gradually this turned into a really quite intense discussion which came out of I think really the the defeat of the left-led Labour Party because what we were seeing was that it was very hard to break through some of these nationalist discourses and there had been a terrible defeat in the December 2019 general election in the UK and it was clear looking at history and looking at some of my own background going on things like um, Rock Against Racism in the 70s and the fight against the National Front that actually there was a role for something which affects your heart in rather than having a long dry manifesto that tells you earnestly how things should be and that music which Moshmi was doing in the streets in India against these racist laws that were being put in place it was around this time that I, I happened to join a Yiddish choir and it opened up to me the potential of Yiddish poetry and song from, from a radical tradition. Not all the music we did was from that tradition, but it's there as a rich scene. And because of Yiddish as a language and a culture not belonging to any nation state, this kind of unborderedness of it. So in the article, I talk about this whole idea of wanting to push back against the hierarchy of racisms and anti-racisms, which I had kind of um, mentioned earlier in this conversation. But really what was disturbing me was that the left-led Labour Party, a bit like the Sanders movement in the US, for all their imperfections, had wanted to tackle things that seemed to be at the forefront of young people's concerns around climate, around the housing crisis, around the wider effects of austerity, as well as addressing colonialism, racist histories, and so on. And it seemed to be impossible to come to power because a range of determined, different kinds of people and interests were arrayed against it. And that this is why we wanted to look at whether if you've got a coming together of people who want to promote an ongoing kind of ethno-nationalism tied perhaps to a continuity of the remnants of neoliberalism, and they're talking to each other at a high level, then from below, shouldn't we explore ways of connecting transnationally across boundaries and across borders to develop political movements against this? I just found this particular body of work within Yiddish poetry and music so exciting because it had emerged through struggle. People like David Edelstadt only lived till the age of 26, but experienced terrible pogroms following the assassination of the Tsar in 1881 and was politicised, was a worker, and worked in his brother's cobbler's business, but also then went to America and worked more in the garments sector. And during just this three-year period, he wrote these incredible songs. And what to me was so important about those songs, the ones that I know, which is, of course, only a small minority of them, is how universal they are, how internationalist they are. There's a very famous song which I was introduced to by David Rosenberg of the Jewish Socialists Group. We chatted about, um, we basically interviewed him when I was working on this paper. 
and he told me about the song In Kampf, In Struggle, which David Edelstadt wrote the poem. And the last couple of lines say, Mir kämpfen, mir kämpfen bis wannen, die ganze Welt wird werden befreit. We will struggle and we'll keep on struggling until the whole world is liberated. It's a song that's been covered by the amazing Yiddish singer Isabel Frey, whose, whose album Millennial Bundist might be familiar to, to some of your listeners. And Daniel Kahn, of course. And Daniel Kahn, of course, who I also talk about quite a lot and quote from in the paper. But it's not just about Jewish liberation. It's a radical Jewish liberation tradition which wants to be coalitional and whatever its imperfections, wants to work together to work for liberation for all with everybody. And I think that's something which really grabbed me. I think it's very interesting. When you look at some of the songs that were produced in that late 19th, early 20th century period, whether you think of In Kampf or you think of Die Schwur, of course, In Alle Gassen, Daloi Polizei, even Alle Brieder. Alle Brieder has some mentions that make it an explicitly Jewish song. But the other ones that I mentioned, quite famously Die Schwur in particular, do not have specific Jewish mentions. There is nothing inherently Jewish about the text of a song like Die Schwur. But despite that, it very clearly resonates with a Jewish progressive or radical socialist tradition, and one that is in many ways timeless. You can think that perhaps if you look at a song like Undu Akers, which is connected very much to, you know, banging the hammer, stuff like that, that already talks about today a more romanticized idea of what a worker, a Jewish worker is but nevertheless still remains relevant and understandable to a contemporary population. And it's why these songs are um, widely beloved by not just the choir that you mentioned in Brighton, but I know that there is a the revolutionary choir in Krakow that uh, I've never been a part of, but several of my friends, including Laurie, who we interviewed recently. There is a revolutionary choir that's active in Prague that I found out about recently, which is connected to that. And yeah, I do think as well, just when it when you talk about music, because this is probably the first time that we're tackling music as a subject on the Jewish diasporist, it really does have the opportunity of just bringing people together of all different kinds of traditions and having songs that you know together that you can resonate with. Just the fact itself about being in a room with people that are all singing them, not they don't even have to sing well. Personally, I'm not even too much a fan of a choir. I find a choir might be a little bit too, I don't know, synthetic in that way, as opposed to like people on a stadium chanting or just ch in, even in a pub, something like that, if you want to go very laddie with the ideas behind it. And I think it's really important. It's really something that for me personally, I've said this to you before, it's something that connected me with my Jewish identity, not just radical Jewish songs, but even songs that come from uh, liturgical or folk uh, backgrounds in Hebrew, there are, of course, several interesting songs in Ladino. I'm sure there are in other languages I'm not too familiar with connecting to the Jewish community. And it, almost in that spirit, we mentioned already questions relating to politics and, and how this impacts politics. I, I would like to hear your thoughts about this, because this is also not something that we've really focused about quite often. I don't find myself too comfortable personally talking about the Corbyn years in the Labour Party. I arrived in Britain. I never lived before in Britain. I was very much an outside observer, still paying attention more or less to what was going on. But I arrived in Britain at the age of 18 in 
October 2019. So just a few weeks, really, before the election. And so I was aware of a lot of the discourse as it was taking place, but I just sort of jumped into it after a lot of stuff had already happened in that way. And likewise, I don't find myself too comfortable speaking over the experiences of very many people that I do respect and do have, I think, at least generally speaking, progressive politics, not just on the, on the British level, but also relating to Israel-Palestine, who, who do say that they did feel, um, on an incidental level we're speaking here, uncomfortable with the way in which they were treated inside the Labour Party in those years. They felt that uh, in many progressive Labour-left spaces, they felt that they needed to prove that they aren't uh, pro-Israel before they could even be uh, respected in that way. And likewise, certain statements and ways in which the party acted, and we can go into it. But for me, what I think is an important lesson that could be understood from from the aftermath of that time is that when there was the period of a lot of focus on on Jewish members in the Labour Party, there did come to be a pro-Corbyn group inside of Labour, a JVL, Jewish Voice for Labour. And I spoke as well to people in, in the JSG about this. There were really sort of two tactics that could have taken place uh, at that time. One was to stand behind the Labour Party left leadership at that time and sort of act as a protective shield against what many times were bogus claims of anti-Semitism, especially from bad faith actors in the right-wing press and stuff like that. But there was also another path, which I think was very much not undertaken, and that was to really try and focus on what a Jewish left perspective, Jewish politics today, could mean and what implications would that have and how that would resonate with the Jewish community today to have a strong left perspective active inside of it and and addressing a lot of the issues that exist within the community. So, for example, there is very little, in my view, connection between Jewish student communities and Jewish studies as a field of study and academic engagement, which I think is a tremendous waste of Jewish education, of of Jewish cultural education. If you're involved in in JSOCs today, Jewish student societies in Britain, you don't really focus on any Jewish music apart from some of the base liturgical and religious stuff that you might do. But stuff like what we talk about, Yiddish songs, even like Hebrew folk songs, the full diversity of that, that's not focused on. There isn't much of that kind of organizing that does exist. And I do want to say that, you know, for example, the Jewish Musical Institute is engaged in certain stuff. Uh, Jewish Renaissance, the magazine, has a musical section of Jewish culture in, in that way. But not at the mainstream communal level, I'd say nowhere near enough. This stuff like this that could at the very least be shown to that the Jewish communal authorities and the Board of Deputies was very loud in, uh, in these years. But the Board of Deputies doesn't focus on this kind of stuff. At the student level, the Union of Jewish Students doesn't focus on this kind of stuff. And I feel that in those years when I think it was really important to show what a Jewish politic of that kind that can focus on, of course, on issues relating to Israel-Palestine, the question of how anti-Semitism is addressed. There was never really this kind of approach of what resonates, I think, with us and with a lot of people that have the kind of background that both of us have of a Jewish culture, of a, of a secular Jewish culture around music, theatre, film, art, sport. That would be really shown as a possible way of being Jewish in 21st century Britain. That's not something that the Jewish left, in my view, 
uh, focused on. It ended up being this kind of, we mentioned David Rosenberg already today, it was his analogy that ended up kind of being the charges of anti-Semitism. You've got JLM, the Jewish labor movement, in the blue corner and JVL, Jewish Voice for Labor, in the red corner, and then they get to fight it out. And once that became JVL's reason in, reason for existence, they ended up really just sort of focusing and sort of defending everything at all costs. And I think there were mistakes that happened there as well. That's sort of my very post-fact, I wasn't here, I was too young for this. Now I'm the smart person that tells everyone how wrong they were. Perspective on this. I'm about wondering what you think as someone who was more active during these times and saw these uh, processes taking place. Thank you so much, Zach. I mean, like you said to me with something I said earlier, there's so much I could say. First of all, I'd like to say that on a positive note, we've had struggles in our university alongside other university staff unions for pay, uh, for gender equity, for race equity, and over casualization and workloads. And we've had, as you know, we've had a lot of strikes in the last few years, since really 2018, including over pensions mm-hmm. as well. And at Sussex, this student union, the University of Sussex Student Union, has been basically our comrades. We've been working together, the University and College Union and the University of Sussex Student Union. They have supported us so much in this. They've provided, in the last few rounds of strikes, they've provided a marquee for us on the picket line, you know, as well as like refreshments and uh, being on the picket with us. We developed relationships through struggle. And those relationships later developed into some Yiddish singing workshops, which I organized with other union members and student union members and student union exec, um, run by Paulina Shepard, who's the director of the Yiddish choir that I used to be part of. And nothing that I say about politics applies to her. She is a musician, um, but we we asked her and she came in and we discussed the music and with a colleague who's a, a translator of Yiddish poetry, who's at Sussex called Sam Solomon, we, we worked together with Paulina and the songs that were selected for the first one were... Um, Die Zukunft, and also Mein Ruhrplatz. And so we had these very universal, positive, internationalist kind of hopeful, especially in the case of Die Zukunft, the future for your listeners uh, who don't know, talking about a world in which we would abolish the sword and the crown and money. It was a real abolitionist feeling, uh, singing Die Zukunft with this joint staff-student collaboration, which uh, happened in our campus. So that happened here, and I just wanted to say that. To come to the specifics of the Labour story, I think it's important to look at what happened in the 2015-2020 years, not through any individual leader, because that has been a problem in the sort of toxifying of a name. Although actually, um, the person who did become leader, you know, I've been at Passover Seders with them twice online with the Jewish Socialist Group. And, you know, they were also at the Judas uh, Passover Seder. And, you know, this, this is, these things are important parts of the story. I, I know what you're saying when you talk about the different groups in the party, but I think it's really important to worry about the anti-Semitism of the disproportionate number of Jewish people who've been expelled or suspended under the current leadership. For all the things you say, which I'm not taking issue with in relation to particular groups and factions that were connected with Jewish uh, existence in the Labour Party, 
we still have seen a really quite vicious purge of the left, which has been disproportionately Jewish. I think it's important to say that. And it's also important to say that during the years of the left leadership, you know, stuff has come out about not just outside people who were trying to use anti-Semitism in a bad faith way, but also within the party machinery. And we've had these WhatsApp conversations from the 2017 election that have come to the fore showing how there were people who, let's say, were not unhappy that anti-Semitism charges came about because they could hurt the left leadership. And I'm not saying they were happy with anti-Semitism, but there's some bad faith acting going on there within the party. It's really important for, and we say in the paper that anti-Semitism on the left has a long history. It is a reality. There is a brilliant book um, by uh, Brendan McGeever about anti-Semitism in the Russian Revolution, which I recommend very strongly to all your listeners. There's the moment when the great leftist black leader, singer Paul Robeson from the United States goes to Tchaikovsky Hall, and we talk about this in the paper, in Moscow, and sings the uh, what became the great partisan song, the, the, the song called Zognit Kainmol, um, which means um, never say that you are on the last road or you've reached the last road. He sang that in Yiddish, and it was broadcast across Russia, and it was also translated. He sang it in Yiddish as a criticism of Stalin's purges of Jewish artists and intellectuals. There is a long history. I mean, okay, let's not necessarily equate Stalin with the left and so on, but it's important not to deny anti-Semitism on the left. However, there was a lot more going on in those times, which was, like you say, um, in bad faith, and it needed to be dealt with in good faith. And one of the things that I'm excited about now is that there is an alliance, a coalition among different groups on the Jewish left. This includes groups like Na'amod, it includes Jewish Voice for Labour, and you couldn't say they are you know, the same thing at all for reasons that you've talked about. It also includes the Jewish Socialist Group. It also includes, very importantly, the Black Jewish Alliance um, and other groups like Jews for Justice for Palestinians. And I went to a Shabbos meal, um, which was organised by the Jewish bloc a few weeks ago. And this is a Jewish bloc that's come together to protest what's happening at the moment in Palestine and Israel, and particularly to call for a ceasefire and to, to, to for an end to what the people involved and myself would see as a genocide. But it was important to have a movement building event like this meal, and it was absolutely fantastic. It was led by the Black Jewish Alliance. I think that's really important because there are people in the yeah. Black Jewish Alliance have a lot of organizing experience, but it was also a point where I, I was honored to be involved with David Rosenberg and Julia Bard singing two Yiddish songs, just the three of us with 80 people there, which connected with this, with this kind of universal internationalist politics. And this, these songs, one of them was In Camp and one of them was Zognit Kainmol, which, which I've, I've mentioned both of the songs. I don't think it was necessarily a very nice experience for the listeners. I'm not commenting on David Williams <laughs> uh, singing, but I was like so anxious that people would get how amazing and important and universal these songs were that I was singing very loudly. And I really think I was probably singing too loudly. But people did have sheets and they could join in if they wanted to. And yeah, I'm not worried about it. So I think there are opportunities to bring together 
music, there was also Ladino songs, there was a klezmer band, there was dancing. And, you know, in the struggle, in this case, this, this is a Palestinian-led struggle in which the Jewish bloc is a part, and there are many other blocks. It's important, in spite of everything, to find moments of joy in order to build the, the sort of sustenance around this really interesting new development. Yes. One song that I personally think should be utilized at this moment is Zbrent, the song by the, the great Bundes from Krakow, Mordechai Gbirtig, who I believe also was a carpenter at the time. And it talks about, it's always, you know, complicated when, when we're talking about historical parallels, but I think certainly right now when we are faced with not even talking about Gaza, but if you look at the West Bank, a pogrom-like situations and a government that is supposedly now supporting so-called voluntary emigration, which is what the Polish government was talking about in the 1930s to its Jewish population. The songs Brent talks about the town, the shtetl that is burning and was really a call to action. And it says, the, the final line of the refrain is, and you look and you've got your arms down, you're looking, just watching as our, our shtetl is burning. And I would really like to see at some point the utilization of that song with one word changed instead of unser Städtel brennt, Zeyer Städtel brennt, their town is burning. I think that that could be a very, very powerful invocation of Jewish culture and music in that, in that factor. I'm very, very happy about the development of the Jewish bloc. I would also like to see it be transformed in, into something maybe, I'm not saying sort of official organization together, but I think that there should be a greater pooling of resources and coordination between them. I believe, for example, um, the renting of an office space together, which is something that we don't really have on the Jewish left, at the very least in London. That's also something that's worth discussing. Neither of us are now in London, but that's the, the center of world of this organizing is happening for now, at least. And likewise, what I mentioned in the conversation of Making Menches two episodes ago about um, also some kind of positive vision, positive, not necessarily happy, but supporting something, because I do find that there is a lot of opposition to what is currently happening. And that's, of course, crucial. But also, I think there needs to be a, what are we fighting for? What is our what is our end goal? Not utopia, but what concrete demands can we have in the short to medium uh, to me, perhaps long term? So I would very much encourage anyone who is in London to know about the, the Jewish bloc, become involved in that. And if there are possibilities of that kind of cultural engagement with it, then I think that that will be are very, very important to show this is a kind of Yiddishkeit, and I use this word in no sense in an Ashkenormative term, but a kind of Jewish identity that very much compels us towards actions and fighting for a better world. Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. If there are any final points that you would like to make, or any shout-outs, or anything that you weren't able to address earlier, then do consider this your space. Actually, before I do that, I'm just going to say that to all who have listened this far, thank you so much that you have stayed on for the whole conversation. I would like to say that organizing this uh, podcast is something that is quite time-consuming and not cheap. 
time is money, but also for all the rolling costs that we have are also important. And we don't want to have any sort of paywalls behind what we do. But if anybody would like to donate, there will be a Patreon in the description and we will be taking any donations, even one dollar, one pound, one euro, anything a month uh, rolling will be a very, very good help. And certainly all of our new listeners, and there's quite a few new listeners that we are having, this will be something that will be very, very much appreciated. And we will also try to integrate our gratitude towards people who donate to us into the future production of the podcast. Ben, would you like to say anything, any final words? I'd like to thank you, you know, hugely from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciated this invitation and opportunity to speak about such important issues to all of us, and I'm sure to, to many of your listeners. I think what you said about positive vision alongside what we're against, that is at the heart of abolition thinking. At the heart of abolition thinking, where I've learned so much from writers like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, for example, is the envisioning and making of a new world. And this comes through some of those Yiddish songs as well, not just the breaking down of the things that need to be broken down, um, I also wanted to say two other things. In Brighton, where I live, there's a kind of mini reflection of the Jewish bloc among differently positioned Jewish left people who've been coming together in recent months, working with our local ceasefire coalition. And I'd like to give a, a shout out to that group, which does have an against name. Um, it's called, at the moment, Brighton and Hope Jews Against the Occupation. But it's very much inclusive of all kinds of perspectives we've been talking about and more focused on action right now rather than struggles over the name. And finally, I wanted to have a shout out to the Yiddish teacher. I've had several Yiddish teachers, but the Yiddish teacher who's been so central to my inspiration with not just the, the actual quality of the Yiddish and engagement with Yiddish and, and the leftist politics, but also ensuring that I went to places like Yiddishland, where I visited in New York State in the summer and, and learned so much. And, and that is Annie Cohen. And Annie Cohen, uh, for those of your listeners who don't know, is among many other things. She's also a singer and a musician, but she's a historian who works with the Yiddish diaries of Jewish fighters in the Spanish Civil War, a time when there was lots of coalitional work across differently oppressed groups and different left ideologies to fight back against fascism and her work is incredibly inspiring so that was that's my last word. Annie Cohen was also well I was going to say my first Yiddish teacher but my first Yiddish teacher was my dad so yeah absolutely uh, Annie Cohen of course also was a UJS Union of Jewish Students presidential candidate a few years ago laying some of the foundations of the work that me and others have tried to work for in the years since then and absolutely I join in to say um, all the best to you Annie <laughs> Kinders kicken auf Nacht heute Kinder. Nur aber kicken heißt vermeuren mein Gefühl. Bubbelseile sind in Gewähnen, Katzetten. 
فرش گرفتن فریازم دنیا درد هفن هرتن کنخ نخش بیرندش رامن انشام فامد لیبه هم خیارت <تصفيق>